This is Bumping Into, where we have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. Hello, music enthusiasts from around the world. Welcome to another episode of Bumping Into. I am your host, Francis Populin, and today we are talking with world-renowned guitarist David Grissom. Regular listeners will know that this is part of the Bumping Into That Sound series of shows. Uh, those that don't know what I'm talking about, Bumping Into That Sound is basically a selection of episodes that focus around musicians, uh, their inspirations, their origin story, their sound, their equipment, and what they're currently up to. When I was putting together the idea of doing this series, there was a handful of musicians that made themselves instantly available. And they did so without the safety net of hearing anything prior. One of those people that was kind enough was David Grissom, not only a true professional of the music industry and highly regarded guitarist, but one of the genuinely nice people of the industry. David has an impressive body of work, uh, also as a solo artist, but he is also very well known for his time as John Mellencamp's lead guitarist and then his work with the Dixie Chicks. Famous for his warm Texas style of blues rock sound, he, he is a master of his craft. So much so that in conjunction with PRS, he has a signature guitar and amplifier range. This is David's story uh, about his inspirations, how he got the gig with Mellencamp and all things equipment. I hope you enjoy the show. David, how are hey. you going? Good, how you doing, man? Yeah, I'm really good, really good. Thank you very much for your time. Sure, man. Pleasure. What I would love to do, go into basically, how did you start just before you started, your influences, and then coming onto the scene, and then go into a couple of albums where I think really define your sound, and then talk about the equipment that I suppose makes up the core part of your your signature sound. Okay. So if I can take you back pre, uh, pre I suppose, professional uh, top tier level if we go back to when it all began what what was the starting the starting people or, or moment for you as a guitar player uh, as a guitar player it was the Beatles and specifically Revolver um, I, my grandfather played drums a little bit and I was sort of thinking I was going to be Ringo and then I heard Revolver and I wanted to be George and, and so <laughs> you know that that's kind of the big moment that jumps out at me but really i fell asleep every night with a little am radio next to my bed you know so i was listening to top 40 which when i was a, a young kid was just all over the map all different kinds of stuff pop music of the time um which was really at least in what i where i grew up in kentucky was very was quite varied and uh the genre it wasn't really you know, shoved into this pipe of stylistic criteria as it is now. It was kind of all over the map, but, you know, a lot of interesting chords and melody uh, that caught my ear early on. And and so that, that was really, that, that was the jump start. I think it was hearing Revolver. And do you remember as I suppose, you know, like all kids, you would have got your first guitar and then started playing. And do you remember the point in time where you thought, I've made it. This is it now. We've 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 gone from wanting it to becoming it. You've you've entered that top tier professional grade. Uh well, I'm still trying to I'm trying to <laughs> enter a, a <laughs> top tier, you know, the top the varsity the ceiling keeps getting higher. Um, <laughs> uh I don't know. I mean, um you know, there was all these little signposts along the way uh jamming with friends for instance and like uh sorry sort of like riding a bike you know when you you the, the first day that you get up on the bike you don't know how it happened but it just happened and just i would happens. have these these moments of playing with other people when we would be playing like an almond brothers song and i was really improvising or i was really playing um there was you know so there was the, there were things all along the way like that where it was like um, you know, I never really, really thought I would do anything else. That's, that would be, I would wow. preface all this by that. For some reason, at an early age, I thought, 
I had the sense that this was absolutely what I wanted to do, music. And there was something about it, which I was incapable of really articulating at the time. But um, I, I took lessons from different people. And I know that the first two guys were like, pretty quickly, like, you need to now go take lessons with this guy. And the next guy was like, now you need to go take lessons with him. So I figured, well, maybe I'm doing something right because they're, they're sending me to these increasingly uh, difficult uh, teachers, you know, like from just basic stones and house of the rising sun to blue, to a big blues phase, then into uh, jazz and, and, um, listening to Wes Montgomery and Coltrane and all those guys and in, in learning something about that style of music. So there was a sense that I was progressing. Yeah. I will say that there was one moment uh, that was really pivotal or that, that sticks with me that um, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. And there's a, there's a not that well-known, but very influential jazz guitar player named Jimmy Rainey, who he played with Charlie Parker. I mean, he was like the first guitar player to play with Charlie Parker. He was from Louisville. And um, I, my, my teacher at the time suggested I try to go take a lesson with him. And I, and I went over to his house and he had, uh, he was working on a book of solos. And I was like, not, a, I mean, I was, I was probably a better jazz player then than I am now, but I was not really still very fluent, but Sitting there with him, we played like three or four tunes, and it was like all of a sudden, it was like he transferred this sort of um, wisdom, Yoda energy into my body, and I was really playing. I mean, I was really playing the tunes, and uh, at the end of the lesson, he was like, well, what do you think you're going to do? And I presumed he was talking about career-wise and everything. I said, well, I kind of like to you know, play guitar if I could make it, you know, and he's, and he just, he said, he looked me straight in the eye. He goes, you're going to make it. Wow. There's no doubt you're going to, you're going to make it. And and that was sort of this, uh, there was, a, there was a sincerity in the way he said it that, uh, that made me, that just something sort of like the, the gears all sort of clicked into place at that time. And it was like, okay, I am going to make it and I am going to do this. And, um, yeah. That's a special moment to have. It was very, very, very cool. It was really cool. Yeah, geez. I mean, the the, the confidence that that would bring, and the um, calmness as well, knowing it's what you wanted. You've been told by someone you admire that's where you're going. A lot of things would have lined up just in that small, brief conversation of those few words. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I certainly didn't go. I didn't. Uh, I'm not a jazz guitar player. I'm a huge jazz listener and a fan of the music. And I incorporate a lot of that, the things, elements of it in my playing. So it wasn't like, you know, it was coming from, I mean, at the time, you know, to paraphrase or or quote Tom Petty, the future was wide open. And it was really, uh, I was listening to any and all music I could get my hands on. It's, you know, um, so it was really cool coming from him, but it is it is ironic because I, that's not really the path that I took. Um, but I maybe he heard something or felt something, and yeah. and that was what he was referring to. Wow. The um, is is there for yourself and your work? Is there an album or a series of songs that you would say define you you and your sound? best if someone was to say to you well what do you do what is it that's that's uh, your brand you'd say oh it's this album or 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 this song is it is i know as people get older and they get more experience and they start branching out and doing a lot more that probably gets harder to put a category on but is there something you feel that defines your classic signature sound best that you've recorded um well i'm it's really that's very difficult to answer i mean yeah. because to me there's sort of the my life as a guitar player solo artist and a songwriter and you know i put out five cds on my own so i would point to those cds as like that's kind of like what i do when i do my thing yeah but yeah. the bulk of my life probably in my if, if I, the word career makes it sound like it it's more of a business than it is i don't know but 
has been backing up other artists. And um, I've been really, really, really fortunate to play with a lot of great songwriters. And I pride myself in playing in that context, which is not, it's not about me and my soloing and putting my stamp on it. It's playing for the song. Um, So I would point to, um, you know, certainly my, the years that I learned so much about music were with Joe Ely and um, the, there's a live record we did called live at Liberty lunch, which I think is a good representation. And certainly I was a lot younger and I played a lot faster <laughs> and more ahead of the beat than uh, that. But then I would jump to the future and say like, you know, the, the newest James McMurtry record, I played most of the guitar on that. And oh. it's just, um, you know, for me, uh, I'm, I'm a songwriter too, but to be, when I'm in the sideman role to play on songs that have that depth and weight, make it that much more special. I mean, when you're, when I'm asked to contribute to a record or a project like that with a, a songwriter who I have the utmost respect for, and, um, the canvas is pretty empty, basically wide open. I really, really, really uh, enjoy that. And I think that has been something I've been lucky to, uh, I've been lucky to be, find myself in those situations a lot over the years. And so there's sort of that, that's sort of like another little slot you know, backing up people and supporting yeah. people that I, I'm very proud of. And I think there's an art to it and I've studied and admire. And so most of my favorite guitar players are not the flashiest guys. It's the guys that can come up with cool parts and arrange guitar, layer guitar parts and uh, just play the right thing. If, even if it's just like one note, that to me is there's an art and a beauty and simplicity and Zen thing that I yeah. value yeah. just as much as, and I enjoy just as much as I do listening to the Almond Brothers at Fillmore East or, uh, you know, any number of classic records based around imp- improvising. So if we, um, <clears throat> I mean, for me, I, 90, I take you back to 1992, and that's how I discovered yourself, um, was on Mellencamp's Whenever We Wanted album. Um, and at the time, I was 12 years old, that album came out, and it it just grabbed me straight away because that sound on that album was so um oh, it was it it I really don't know how to put it into a, a singular word because it was very um it was just a classic pure hard rock sound it what I find can happen is when you get guys that are pop or soft rock and they try to do a, a harder rock sound it sounds like they're Im- imitating something that album didn't have that to me that album was what got me interested in the guitar. Um, it was just warm. It was grunty. It, it had everything going for it. It was in your face, but it was balanced. Um, a massively underrated album, uh, at, I think, too, especially. And it's it's aged incredibly well. Even now when you listen to it, it still sounds very, very fresh and tight. Um, but that was my discovery of yourself. And back then, all you had was opening up the, the CD cover, looking at who was playing the guitar and if that guy's CDs weren't in the uh, music shop, it all that was it. That's that's as far as you could push that train back then. Whereas opposed to now, it's you know you've got an abundance of of uh, access to information and content. How did that aspect come about? How how did you jump on board for that album? Oh man, I you know I I spent a lot of time in Indiana after I finished high school um, several years, and I played in a band with Kenny Aronoff who was John's drummer for years. And so, and I, and I knew John, I was in Bloomington where they all lived and I worked at a record store and John would come in and buy stuff. So I kind of knew him from that, but he was not like, Hey, how you doing? It was really standoffish sort of vibe. But um, so when they, they were working on the the record before that, it was called big daddy. And that record started earlier than it was supposed to. And, John's one of John's guitar players, Larry Crane, was not available. So they called me up out of the blue. I jumped on a plane and flew up there and, and did four songs with them. And it went well, I guess, because um, six months later, uh, I guess Larry left 
the band and they just called me and said, Hey, do you want to, do you want to be in the band? And I said, yes, I want to be in the band. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that John had made a lot of records with, um, you know, Lonesome Jubilee, which is, I think maybe his best record was before Big Daddy. Um, in all the, you know, all those records, Scarecrow, um, had this massive drum sound. Yes. Yep. And yep. it's the sound of the room at his studio and Kenny, you know, the way Ken- Kenny can actually play to the room. He can create, he, you know, a great drummer. You could put one microphone up and Ringo, for instance, uh, you know, Chris Layton, who I have played with a lot, put one microphone over the drum set. He plays so balanced, but like Kenny could make, he could play the drums to sound the best in that room. And so that this, the records were really built around that huge drum sound. Well, John decided he wanted to totally shift gears on the next one, which was whenever we wanted. And he, 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 so he, he said, the drums are going in the little room and the guitar amps are coming out into the big room. So John knew going in that he wanted to make a different sounding record. And I think I was the new guy and that, that was going to be a big part of that sound because I had come from playing with Joe Ely. It was, you know, it's really aggressive, um, rocking thing. Um, so in a way, I guess to a certain extent, I was sort of the new toy, the new guy in the band. And um, the songs just nobody said, hey, we're going to make a harder rocking record. I mean, that never came up. It was just like John would bring the songs in with an acoustic guitar and we would all respond to that. And I think me being in the equation made it obviously took them. Larry Crane, who was the, the my predecessor, is one of the greatest rhythm guitar players um talk about someone who's underrated he was so pivotal in the sound of those records um so when he was not there there was kind of this void that i kind of just like bull in a china shop came in and you know it was a it was a more aggressive sound and i was i was john encouraged it once it got going he was all for it and he, he uh He's incredibly intuitive and incredibly smart and um, creative in the studio. It, it was a, it was the the best thing I took away from the, my uh, three solid years of working with him and doing three records was the way he worked in the studio. And um, so that that's a long winded answer to, to to say that really how that's how that came about. You know, it was just sort of this. Uh, John's vision of a bigger guitar sound, move the drums into this room. That's going to change everything right all the right off the bat. Yeah. And um, you know, there's not much acoustic guitar on that record. It's no. it's, pretty, it's pretty electric. No, I, well, and and that I wanted to as one part of of I suppose talking about equipment was how you got that sound for that because um, I I also as a kid went to the um, to the live show that you guys did in, in Melbourne in 92 oh, yeah. um, as well. So I, I went to that concert as a kid as well. Um, but that, um, yeah, right from the first track, um, those guitars just come in and they, they're just, it's such a, oh, it's a bulletproof sound. Um, it's such a great yeah. sound. So what, what was the, um, I suppose the, the core that around getting the sound that you had on that album in terms of equipment? It was probably on that record, probably eighty-five percent of my PRS in an old Marshall amp. Wow! And, and it's just straight in and turned up. Straight in and turned up. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And um, at one point, John actually wanted more distortion, and so I was just really not a pedal guy at the time. I mean, I use a lot of pedals now, but back then I used like a TC Electronics booster that, and, and maybe a touch of delay, but not on the records. I just would, I would just go straight in. And so we actually got, I mean, I was friends with the guys at Marshall and they had a newer amp that was a little higher gain. And we got one of those for a while, which we used on something. 
like maybe the solo on a song called Melting Pot or something. Um, yeah. It kind of feeds back more. I think that might have been that amp. I can't remember, but it was it was like I have this 50 watt that I used on even the clean stuff. You just turn them down and have the greatest clean sound and then turn them up to about six and take a PRS and hit them like I hit them. Um, and they'll, they'll crunch just, you know, it's like really the settings that I use are quite different than, um, what a lot of people think the Marshall thing is, is when, you know, like a lot of people use a Marshall and they think, well, you just turn everything up to 10 yeah. and go. <laughs> and it's a mess to me, the way I play, it's a mess that way. So I'm like every, every tone control is on about four and the volumes on six. And it's, this is an old vintage Marshall where you don't need to bridge the channel. So it doesn't have the bright cap on the first channel. And oh, that's okay. kind of what I, that I mean, I can, take every every vintage marshall sounds different but that's my starting point and it's a very very usable uh point of reference there are other guys that turn everything up to 10 and turn the bass off oh, and they okay. get and it makes it work fine for them but i felt i felt somewhat vindicated when i saw the rig run down for acdc and they showed malcolm's amp marshall settings and they were exactly what i just described Oh, wow. They were like, like almost exactly what, and, and, you know, so it's that, it's that setting where when you play soft, the guitar is clean. Or if you turn down to eight or seven, you have a beautiful clean sound. If you turn all the way up and hit it really hard, it crunches. And so it's just that really sweet spot of, you know, to me, the, the two things that I don't that make it difficult, less fun to play are too much gain and compression or not enough gain and compression. So for instance, like a, a twin reverb, that kind of, that's a very difficult amp for me to function with. I have to use a pedal to get it to do something um, for what I do. Yep. You know, if I want it like a strictly a super clean part, it's fine. But overall, it, you know, it's really my, my thing really has not changed much. The whole philosophy and the approach has not changed much since those days with Ely and into Mellencamp and then in Storyville. Um, now I use a smaller, a lower wattage amp that I helped design myself, but it does the same thing. It really is designed to do the same thing at a little lower volume. And which, which is key because there's so many people sitting at home wanting to get that sound. Right, and it's so hard to do when you've got, uh, you know, JCM eight hundred Marshall stack standing behind you, and yeah. you, you just can't get that feeling unless the thing's rattling the windows out of the frames. Yeah, well, it's still. I mean, it's thirty watts, and I'm. T- it's plenty loud, but it's a good loud, and yeah. you know, it. It. Um, it's fun, you know. To me, guitar, guitar lives in the mid range, and so we all want. I mean, I it, for the, for years and years and years, I just wanted like tons of bottom in, and this huge thing, which which is when you're in a three piece band or you're doing a live gig can be one thing, but like having done so many sessions, you realize pretty quickly that you can't eat up that much space, and yeah. so it's the this amp I'm playing now is definitely is a little more mid. Um, it's not high mids. It's not like the harsh nasally mid yeah. frequency. It's, it's, um, kind of like what a great old box AC 30, that sort of mid range without the, the, they can be really bright too, but it's not like that. It, the top end is super smooth and we have all, all sorts of ways to sort of chill out the top end. And it's, so it's somewhere between like a great old AC 30 and a Plexi 50. That's sort yeah. of where that yeah. lives. And how different, I mean, one of my favourite albums is is the uh, Way Down Deep album of yours. How different was the setup on that album as opposed to whenever we wanted? Because it so is that's a similar the, sound. It's very similar. That's the PRS amp, by oh. and large. Um, so, and I recorded all that at my house, that whole record. Wow. And mixed that record myself, <laughs> for better or for worse. I recorded the whole thing in my house. Oh, that's a great album. I mean, that's a it's a top top uh, ranking album in my view. So there's there's certainly nothing lacking in how it came together. That's my favorite sounding record. Um, I could go into all sorts of reasons why I think that happened. Uh, one of which is 
the drummer J.J. Johnson, his sound just is just, I don't know. I mean, I don't, miking drums is really hard to do right. But if you have a great drummer that has a great sound, and I had a had a cool little room to put the drums in, and it just it all worked. And then uh, I don't know the you know I wrote some songs I liked that sort of fit together in this little five six song. It's more like an EP. Um, but I got this guitar sound on way down deep, and once I got that sound, that was sort of the whole record. The whole record kind of wrote itself after I found that sound which is not, like you say, it's not dramatically different than things I'd done in the past, but it, the way the guitar responded to the amp and um, it's a little more gain without being like distorted. It's it's hard to describe. It, it is hard to describe. And that's exactly what I was going to say to you. Yeah. Is it's like as a player, you know, you're always, oh, I wish I had a bit more gain and you put it up and then you go, that's really now too heavy. So you bring it back and you're looking for this perfect because just enough gain warms the space and too little sounds a bit hollow. And, and it's almost like whatever you did and, and what you do, and especially with your own amplifier is you've nailed that perfect, that balance. Just, it's like the stars lined up and there's, there's a lot of gain, but not too much. And it just has this beautiful, warm, full, it's very, very, it's, it's soft, but it's edgy. It's just got everything going on. It really, all came together. Well, it, it does come together because that for me is your sound. Yeah, it, it, it did come together. And, uh, you know, again, it's only 30 Watts, but I run the master all the way up. Yeah. And I really feel like the output stage distortion is a big part of that whole thing we're talking about. It's like, you know, the old Marshalls or in boxes without master volumes or tweet amps it, that, that, you know, when you turn the amp up, you're getting the tubes to do their thing. It's yeah, not the yeah. tubes, it's more, it's the power tubes. And so I run mine, on the, the master on 10 all the time. And it, you know, it's still plenty loud. I mean, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's, not, it's not like, it's not like my amp's not loud enough, but it's, but, but, you know, it's, I play almost every Tuesday night when I'm in Austin at a small club and, when I'm up there playing chords, you know, tuning up and checking my sound, I'm going like, this is so loud. How this is going to kill people. But I always <laughs> look down in the front and, and nobody's like going like this or it's, too, yeah. you know, mouthing. It's too loud. It's just the right top end, yeah. you know, and that's to me, that's where the problems develop is when it's just that piercing uh, trebly. Yeah, yeah, that's hard on the ears. But the it's hard on the ears. Bottom end, yeah. it sounds nice being loud, and it's not too invasive. You actually enjoy it, and you crave it. Yeah, yeah, and there's varying flavors of it. You know, you can get. Um, I've got I've got some old Marshalls that I love that have the same um, lack of piercing things, but they have a different top end than than. And it, I think it's with the power tubes that are in the amp because that's really what you're hearing is the transformers and the power tubes in, in a simpler circuit like that. And I like mixing that up on records. Um, and on, on Way Down Deep, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, I did use a high watt a fair amount on that record too. Um, it's, there, are, there are a lot of doubled parts okay. and... I would use the PRS on one side and the high watt on the other. Um, but again, on the high watt, it's a really bright amp. So I'm in the normal channel and I've got the presence and the treble like way down. Yeah. But another key thing is the speakers that you're playing through. And I've used um, for the PRS stuff. It was pretty much my old Marshall cabinet with 25s with thick basket weave grill cloth. And then the fanes for the high water, a big part of that sound. And they just chilled the top end out. And right. so for new speakers, I'm really kind of always looking for something that will mimic that top end response, but, you know, be a little bit more robust for live playing because even with a 30 watt amp, I generally blow one speaker a year. Oh, like, wow. like I get a new cabinet every year because at the end of the year, one one at least one of the speakers needs to be replaced and so if that one is 
if that one is at that point, I figure the other one is close to it. So yeah. I just, it's a. It's a serviceable item, I guess. You just. It's a serviceable item. You know, you can change the speakers or just get another cabinet or, or whatever. But I mean, so again, at 30 watts, it, it's such, it's really been a, a revelation for me because I see, I've played next to a lot of guys in the last few years that are using like 100 watt two rocks and things like that. And I'm still the loudest guy at all times. And it's wow. the way I, the way I play, you know, I think, you know, yeah. a lot of great guitar players have a very gentle touch. And even when they get aggressive, it's not like, you know, yeah, I it's like, yeah. I, I kind of yeah. came from the, the Pete Towns and early Billy Gibbons, you know, really aggressive that comes through the amplifier. Yeah, and yeah. there are certain Albert Collins. There's you can't get Albert Collins tone or, or Albert King without the you know popping the strings and and hitting it with authority. And yeah. uh, and it's funny that because you you are you are right. I've seen guitarists that are technically brilliant, but you get them ask them to play something that's like a, a hard rock blues type sound, and it sounds a bit synthetic because it's almost too perfect. It doesn't have that aggression that comes through the strings that that you feel coming out of the amplifier. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know Jeff Beck, I saw him the other night, and he's like the best I've ever seen him, and he was just—I mean, it was so righteous. He was oh. so amazingly good. I've seen him fifteen times, and I think the the other night was the best I've ever seen him. And yeah. so that it was it was bone chilling, really. I mean, it was like, um. But all having said all that, it's all that 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 spectrum of the dynamic range is to me, you know, really, I, I it needs to be balanced out by the other end of the dynamic range too, and that's something that, that I feel is really the uh, the balance. So that when you do play aggressive or loud or, or dig in it means something if you do it all night long it's just kind of like you know but after the fifth or sixth song you've heard everything yeah and yeah. uh you know there are there are many 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 guitar players and musicians who i greatly admire and love to go hear play who uh play with a very restrained attack and touch and uh i think there's beauty at both ends of that spectrum if if we come into your so you've got your own amplifier um that you you've obviously designed um and that's going to be very hard i suppose you know like you were saying if you've got a marshall that can be a bit top heavy and you know some of the fenders don't have have what the marshall has and what you've created is this that what suits you best and it's obviously a huge part of your sound so item number 1 for yourself would would be your own amplifier that's key to getting that sound but then if we talk about your cuz you've also developed your own pickups is that right yeah for the for the PRS the the guitar yeah we did we we spent all, over a year developing those pickups wow. so if we if we go into a, a comparative term i mean a lot of guys that that are playing would would just pick up an old you know if an imitation les paul or a, or some old strat and, and bang a, a you know set of humbuckers in it um, to try and get, you know, that, that rockier sound. So how different did you find that pickup that you've created? How, how much did that change as opposed to say like a, you know, the, the 498 Gibson pickup or, you know, a more just a standard off the shelf pickup. Is there a big difference? Um, well, you mean from the other PRS pickups? No, or... no. So, well, be, if we just talk of of because I suppose PRS is I sort of see that as more a very, um, very high end, beautifully crafted guitar as opposed to what you know is more available off the shelf. Um, so normally guys would grab something old and throw a set of Gibson pickups in it, or or even a um a Seymour Duncan JB pickup. Mm -hmm. Well, let's see. You know, I guess at the end of the day my goal was to try to get a sound that was similar to my 59 335 which is i've 
played and I've owned a few PAF guitars and played a lot of them. And to me, the 59 335 that I, that I have is sort of in this sweet spot of like every, every guitar that had PAF pickups and it sounds different to me. So the range of those pickups and then the patent number pickups in the early sixties, uh, which are really not that much different except for the magnet length. Apparently I don't know all the particulars. I wasn't trying to recreate that guitar, but there's a sonic uh, again, the mid range, uh, the, the, where the mid-range lived, how much mid-range there was, and, but the clarity on the bottom end and the smoothness on the top. So it was like all those things yep. um, were kind of what we were going for, but it, the guitar itself is not a 335. And I think really a lot of times people underestimate the acoustic properties of an electric guitar. Right. If the guitar itself doesn't sound good, no great pickup is going to make it sound great. Yeah. And um, so, you know, there was a lot of time and I'd had a lot of experience with Paul's guitars and we made some changes uh, to minor changes, several minor changes that really added up to me to, to, to be a, to be a big uh, step in the direction I was looking for sonically and feel wise so most, you know, 99, or, you know, I don't know what, if, all the ones that I play have a great tone, springy, lively sound to begin with. And so the pickup is like, you know, what microphone you put in front of a singer, like right. okay. the singer's yeah. not a great yeah. singer. You're not going to, you know, you can only do so much. Yep. And, um, so we, uh, my friend here, Ed Reynolds, built a test guitar where you could put, you get 10 pickups and you put them in these little jigs and they would slide into the top of the test guitar and the, and the wiring had alligator clips. It went uh, to terminals on top of the guitar. So you could change a set of pickups in about a minute and a half max. Oh, wow. So... In the past, every time I tried to AB pickups, you know, you're talking about taking the strings off, yeah, <laughs> unsoldering everything. And by the time you get the next set in, you've really forgotten. Yeah. And this was like, you know, slide two pickups out, undo the alligator clip, slide two in, hook them back up, and there we are again. And I could go back and forth, and we would just sit there for, you know, not that long, and it because your ears will get fatigued. Yep. Or they will start, you'll start thinking you're hearing things that really aren't there. And um, we had probably 15 sets of pickups from various manufacturers that we were like testing what we were doing, uh, you know, against to see how they held up and where were they in terms of frequency response, volume, gain, output, and started working with Paul Hey, Paul, we love this A3 bar magnet. Can you send us one with uh, another 100 turns on the, the the slug side? I mean, it was like, you know, every little thing mattered. Wow. And um, this kind of got it to where when I would A-B it against all these other pickups, they, that felt, you know, the, the ones we ended up with felt right. And again, though, guitar to guitar there is a different sound and it's not i don't think it's the pickups it's the it's the wood and the way the neck marries with the body and and you know you say well they'd be great if they all sounded the same but that would to me that's boring it's yeah, like some of the yeah. beauty of 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 organic uh materials is that they you know is, is that variance and so if you have the opportunity to to play more than one or whatever, you can sort of bond. You you will find that you maybe bond with that one. But man, when I go to a clinic for for PRS or show up at a place, I don't bring a guitar. I mean, I play whatever is there. You know, whatever DGT they have have there, and I'm cool with it. It's it's always fine. They're they're really consistent. So, yeah. pedal wise, is there anything that is makes up your, you know, your permanent fixture of having a, a a couple of pedals in front of the amp 
Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I've for studio stuff, I have you know something that I could take a nap on because you have to have a thousand different sounds at the at the at the touch of a button. But man, when I play live, it's four pedals, and so I've got. I go into like a Jetter overdrive pedal uh, that I sort of had a little bit of input on and then into an exotic effects EP booster. Very important fact about that pedal for me is to go inside the pedal and put the dip switch. There's like three or four dip switches in. I'm not sure they're still calling it vintage mode, but, 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 uh, it's the setting that will roll off a little bit of top end when it's engaged. Oh, right. Okay. And if you don't, if you leave it as is, that pedal is, it will brighten up things like an Equiplex preamp will sometimes do, depending on the, sh- the condition of the Equiplex in the era. But for me, again, if I'm using it as a boost and I want to hit the front end of the amp harder for solos, I don't want to add top. I'd rather have the top a little, I'd rather have a little more uh, articulation in my rhythm parts. And then when I take a solo, I would rather hit, I want to hit the front end of the amp harder and not introduce more high end information. So it's the overdrive, then the booster. And then um, I've got an old Arion chorus pedal that I use for like this sort of, fake Leslie sound it's which is it's kind of like a Leslie but not and I like that it's not exactly like a Leslie and from from there into a Strymon El Capistan delay pedal so that that's my small travel board and my local around town board it's just overdrive boost modulation delay and tuner and a lot of talent standing in front of the stage that obviously is uh it makes it, you know, matter how much equipment you put behind you, it, it you know, a lot of uh, people take the the slow road to learning that, um, that there's a, there's a hard process in, in getting the talent as well. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the often overlooked factor is that I find, I don't know how else to say it, except that you have to make the sound with your hands. Yeah you have to create the the sound you want to hear. I mean, if I had a guitar in my hand and I could, I could give you some examples, but when I do a clinic, I walk around the room with my electric guitar unplugged so that people can hear that it really sounds exactly like it sounds when it comes out of the amplifier. Right. And it goes back to what we were talking about before the, you know, Albert Collins, you know, Pat Metheny, Wes Montgomery, Albert King. It's the way they're touching the strings and the pressure and the angle of the pick, or if they're using their fingers or, you know, it's all those things. You have to make the sound and then pedals just enhance that. But uh, to think that you could just go buy 40 pedals and play like, you know, with this, this, like a, you know, perfect posture with your thumb behind the neck and a nice, even alternate picking thing that a lot of people emphasize and tell you to practice, which I have nothing against whatsoever. But that it's sort of, to me, is a little bit like talking to you like this with the same tone of voice. And, yeah, it's and a bit soulless. Well, there are guys that do it. I mean, that, that aren't soulless at all. Um, in, 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 I'm trying to think who that would be, but even like I was going to say, I was going to say Pat Martino. You know, he plays all those even eighth notes. That, but even he, you know, he does these dynamic things that when they happen, it's like, oh man, it's so effective and everything. Um, but he's like a guy to me that has just the the a master of uh, up to, you know alternate picking and even eighth note lines or sixteenth note lines and everything like that. But there's not many Pat Martinos. Yeah. Um, you know, dynamics are your friend. And, um, but again, going back to the, the main thing, the, the main, uh, point 
I was trying to make is that if you don't make the sound with your hand, it's not going to come out of the amplifier. Practice makes perfect, doesn't it? It's, I suppose it's one of those um, you just got to master your craft w- without anything else in front of it and just uh, get better and better. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of it is going to, you know, if, for me, it was just to go to hear, going out to hear other guitar players that I admired and yeah. watching them. And it became real apparent that, you know, uh, why they sounded the way they do by watching their hands. Yeah. And, um, you know, Norman Blake's touch is dramatically different and not even remotely the same as Stevie Ray Vaughan, but they're both to me you know exceedingly musical and beautiful and and there's a lot to be learned from both from all the you know all all great players like that just by watching their hands and 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 their touch it's not so much what pedals are on the board and string wise what gauge strings do you normally prefer well, on my guitar, the PRS, normally I was using 11 to 49, but in the pandemic, I decided that I deserved a break today. <laughs> I have gone to 10.5 to 48, I think. Oh, so it's a okay. slightly lighter. And then even on some of them, I do 10 to 46. Uh, the guitar will tell you what it wants. You know, like some of the guitars... The 10.5s feel exactly like 10s and the 10s feel, and other ones, the 10s feel like 10.5. So it's kind of a guitar by guitar basis. On fenders, I'm always 10 to 46. Gibson, kind of like the PRS. I mean, it's a shorter scale. So, you, I mean, I can throw 11s on and it's not that big of a deal, but I kind of like the way 10s or 10 and a half sound and Gibson's a little better. I mean, and that's another thing is that you know, the, the, the size of your string will affect your tone and bigger is not always better. Yeah. It's definitely harder work, harder work, but you get better tuning stability. Yeah. And, um, for certain styles and certainly certain styles of rhythm playing, it's, uh, it works. It's great. I mean, and, but you know, I, like I have a Gretsch that I keep, uh, flat wounds on that are like 12s to whatever 56 or 54 i, I don't remember yeah uh, and acoustic guitars you know I'm, i go back and forth between 12s and 13s uh, th- again the guitar will tell you what it wants like the whole th- idea that medium sound better on acoustic is is not been my experience like there are guitars that are braced in a way that they sound better with 12 12s on and like i have a triple o martin which is a shorter scale guitar and you think well you should probably put mediums on but it sounds better with 12s it just sounds better and conversely there are dreadnoughts um that if you don't put mediums on them they just they sound like terrible they're 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 braced and built for medium gauge strings and so when you get the mediums on there, it's just like, oh my God, it's a cannon, you know? And so oh, it's really, okay. it, for me, it's been experimenting with, with the guitars that I have to find what I like the best. And, it, and, and I may change my mind, you know, from time to time. And is there anything you're working on at the moment that's, that's due for release or going to be released soon? Any, anything with your uh, signature sound that we can keep an eye out for? No, I mean I do sessions here in my in my studio for people all the time, but not there's very few full record projects happening for me as a sideman anymore. Um I produced a record for a guy named Mike Burris that came out oh, 6 months ago. And so I got really nicely involved with that and then a, the, a French artist came here who I worked with named Patrick Coutan. It just hasn't been a lot of full records. And in terms of my material, I write all the time, but I, I, the hardest thing for me is to get started on a record. And like I was talking before on Way Down Deep, when I got that guitar sound and came up with that riff for the title song, I, for some reason, then I was like, I made the record really fast. Wow. So that first five minutes is the hardest part. <laughs> 
well, I just like, all right, there's, there's, there's true north for the, for this, right? That, that's, that's the direction, that sound, that vibe. And once I have that, once you have a point on the horizon to aim for, it's a lot easier to get there than spinning around all the time. Like, is this going to be more of a singer songwriter record or am I going to do a bunch of guitar instrumentals? And, you know, so it's, uh, and, and we're, it's really hard to, to, decode the environment we're in right now like this is it does it make more sense to put one song at a time out or it does, seems to be more flavor that way isn't it like a it, lot it of does. bands are single or or maybe like an ep but there's it's not that classic bulk album every yeah. few years yeah and then you get into the economics of that uh, like i know i now live in a much smaller place and I have a smaller space to work in where I can't record drums. So, oh. you know, it's a lot cheaper to go record 10 songs, take two days or three days and do 10 songs. Then if you're going to another studio for drums, then go cut one or two songs, go home, come back th- two months later and do one or two songs. I mean, it just the logistics of that and the cost of that, it's you know once you get set up you can make you can record a bunch of songs really pretty quickly if you have the right players yeah. and so as we all are putting out our own records self funding and uh that becomes a concern you know consideration too yeah oh, absolutely it would for sure and yeah. geographically i mean um to to so america is obviously huge the united states is a massive landmass and is it a case of that there is no central point where in Australia, for example, Melbourne would be the the hub of of the arts, really, be it music, be it you know TV, drama, anything. Melbourne is, is very much the, the center point for that. And and Sydney's only an hour's flight from Melbourne, so it's no big deal. And you used to be able to get them for seventy five dollars, so that was never an issue in the past. But um, with you with yourself. Is there that thing of where, you know, because you're somewhat in the middle of the country, aren't you? So if you've got to go to the left or to the right to do something, that's obviously or bring someone in to work with you. That's a big deal, isn't it? Uh, well, it's, you know, if, if you if I have 10 songs together and I have there's a drummer in Nashville or a bass player in LA or whatever that I know I want to use. Cause I think the two of them together would be this great combination. That's not a huge deal. Touring here is almost impossible until you get to a certain level of oh, venue and, you know, and, and stature. Um, I can't do it. I can't, I can't tour here without losing money. I, I did go to Europe, Europe this summer to Italy. And, but I don't, I mean, like if you take a night off in Europe, it's like, it costs, cost me a thousand euros, you know, because you got to buy hotel rooms for everybody. So, I mean, the last, the last longer tour I did over there, I think I did 35 shows in 37 days. And then you're just like praying you, you don't lose your voice. And, uh, yeah. So it's foot to the floor the whole time, foot to the floor the whole time, but the cities aren't as far apart. And in Europe, you know, a hotel room comes with the uh, with the gig. It's a really different. It adds up to quite a bit. Um, in, in the states, the drives are, you know, it's just like everything's spread out. Yeah, yeah, a lot yeah, more. Yeah. Is um, I was talking to to one guy, an Australian artist um, who tours a lot in Europe. And they're very, they've got a big following through uh, France and um, the UK. And he said to me, the big thing he noticed is he said, in Australia, you you do a show, everyone just wants to come and see an hour and that's it. You're done, you're finished, you move on. And he said, but when you go to Europe, if you walk off the stage after an hour, they're thinking, well, when are you coming back to finish the job? Yeah, I mean, I I have I never, I've not done a show less than 90 minutes there on my own. If you're open, if you're, supporting somebody it's going to be a shorter set but yeah. in terms of on my own 90 minutes is the norm is there a difference in the uh, the the music scene if you were to say la to new york to you know where you are do you turn up and have to adjust to what is slightly different in those areas i think so uh, um 
I don't think you have to. And I don't think, I mean, probably, I mean, any, any, any act that I know that tours constantly, like, you know, someone, I don't think that people vary their shows really based on where they are. I think they do the, you know, the people that I like and look up to, they're not going to say, Oh, it's New York. We got to play quieter. We got to, but there are, but as if you're just a club, if you're doing clubs, it's, you do have to take into consideration that like in Austin, we can play loud. I mean, I can go in and play loud and people don't really, that's just expected. But there are a lot of other parts of the country where it's like, you know, if the sound man can hear you, you're too loud. Oh, wow. So, you know, if you're, if you're playing theaters or, 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 or up, you're free to kind of do your show. I mean, you're, you're generally carrying front of house PA and everything like that. You know, so every, like the, I don't know why I keep coming back to like people like Jason Isbell, uh, Lucinda Williams, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to change their show yep. from New York to uh, Jacksonville, Florida. They might add a song or take away a song, or they might have a special guest come and sit in and and that might be a different song or, or like in the case of government mule, one of the, you know, one of the truly great bands touring all the time they vary their set list from night to night, no matter where they are. And it's, that's what, why, you know, people travel with them to go hear their shows, just to see what songs they're going to play. It's very grateful dead sort of. uh, Okay. Phenomenon. And I'm guessing, you know, plans to come to Australia anytime soon for yourself. No, I, I have nothing on the books to, I, unfortunately I've been four or five times. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and for touring, obviously, mostly for touring or all, all, for, touring? All for, all for touring. I came the first time I came was um, my third gig with Joe Ely was in Adelaide. OK, yeah, we supported Jimmy Barnes. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I thought I died and gone to heaven because with Jimmy. We traveled with Jimmy and stayed in the same hotels he did. And I mean, it was it was so much fun. He, he was, he was, he was a gas, uh, treated us great. And then, um, I came back with Mellencamp and we did, I think just once. And then I went twice with the Dixie chicks. Oh, okay. Um, but I've always loved coming. And uh, I guess the first trip was especially great because, I was so young and it was such a new thing for me. And we went to Perth. And so just to sort of get the flavor of the, you know, that five hour flight over to Perth and uh, feeling like I was sort of in this secret land over there. It was really special. And uh, I I love, I love Australia. And uh, and Jimmy Barnes, I guess you'd probably say is seen as our Bruce Springsteen. I guess so. Yeah. I, I didn't even know who he was until we went over and, uh, he definitely kicked butt and, uh, he's still well, going too. He's still, is he? yeah. Well, he was a badass back then. I mean, he definitely left, he didn't leave anything on the stage. And, uh, <laughs> so it was a great double bill with Joe Ely. And, uh, again, it was just, it was really, really great. It seemed like Australia then seemed like what I would picture Southern California was like in the sixties or something. It, it oh, was very, okay. uh, the pace of everything was like free and easy and, uh, everyone's so friendly. And yeah, well, hopefully you get a, a chance to, to come back and do it all again. Yeah. I hope so too. It was, I've, I've been lucky to go. Yeah. I think, I think it was four trips. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time. I appreciate all your time and your information. It's been fascinating um, to talk to you and that insight, you know, it's priceless. So I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to, to talk with you. Thanks for making it through to the end of the show. If you wanted to find out more about this episode, head to bumpingintocomau Don't forget the .au. And find the episode page. Uh, There, there'll be some links and some more info about the guest and all of the topics and items that we spoke about. Feel free to have a look around and check out any other episodes while you're there. And if you think that someone else would enjoy what you have just listened to, please do feel free to hit the share button. 
Thank you again for having us in your ear space. I truly appreciate it. And I hope to catch you on the next one.